0: Welcome to the Norfolk Heritage Centre podcast. For this week's Heritage Hour, Trevor Markworth covers the history of Norwich Hippodrome. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this Heritage Hour talk. My name is Trevor and I work here at the Millennium Library. Today I'll be talking to you about the history of the Norwich Hippodrome Theatre. It's an informal talk which I hope you will find interesting, informative and entertaining. It will last about 40 minutes after which time, if you have any questions, please feel free to ask them and I'll do my best to answer them. Alternatively, if you have your own stories and memories of the Hippodrome, please share them with everyone here, it'll be very interesting to hear them. So, I'm gonna start this session asking you all a question is there anyone here who's never heard of the Hippodrome okay Uh, second question is has anyone here ever been to the Hippodrome years ago did you ever go and see anything here fantastic how long ago dare I ask was it that you (laughs) went many years okay well please do tell us about it after the talk it would be very interesting to hear what you uh, what you saw there right well, the Hippodrome stood until its demolition in the early 1960s on St. Giles Street on the site now occupied by the St. Giles multi-storey car park. In fact, as you stand facing the entrance to the car park, there is a blue plaque on the wall to your left which tells you that the Hippodrome was once there and it mentions some of the well-known personalities and actors and artists who perform there, some of whom I'll be talking about in a little while. Now this talk is not intended to be an exhaustive study of the place, but more an overview of its history and to give you some idea of what it was and how it changed and adapted over the years in reaction to the changing tastes in live performance and entertainment. Also, hopefully, to consider it within the context, its wider context, a social and historical context in terms of Norwich's development. The city has changed dramatically over the years, Arguably its greatest changes have occurred during the very period that the Hippodrome stood. Two factors in particular caused this change, the wartime bombing of Norwich and the planning department of City Hall. I will will, will leave you to decide. Who's caused most damage? The Luftwaffe or Norwich City Council? It's just joking. (laughs) Now the Hippodrome was badly damaged in the war by bombing but did survive and later reopened, only eventually to fall foul of the Wreckers Ball years later. Our story begins in 1898. When a syndicate of investors got together with the intention of building a new theatre for Norwich, they chose a site on St Giles, then occupied by the empty Norfolk and Norwich, sorry the Norfolk Hotel—which stood where the car park now stands. And that is what it used to look like. So, if you imagine you're looking up St Giles, the city's behind you, and the car park entrance is sort of roughly, roughly here. This shop is about—well, it'd be late 1890s still in use by the looks of it. The old old hotel was, the site was purchased, the the hotel was demolished and it cost to do this £9,500 in 1898 for the syndicate which is roughly equivalent today to about £1,140,000 so real estate never really gets any cheaper so it's a very very big investment indeed. One of the men involved in this grand project was a man called Fred Morgan, a very colourful character, then manager of the Theatre Royal over the road. Now, Fred Morgan was, by all accounts, an extraordinary man who had a very colourful life prior to settling in Norwich in the 1870s. He managed various theatres in Norwich before starting work at the Theatre Royal in 1885. Before his tenure as manager there, the Theatre Royal had acquired the reputation for being a pretty rough place run down and out of date, staging shows of a low brown nature and attracting an unruly audience accordingly. The theater acquired a reputation for being a terrible place and a disgrace to the city. And there were many letters written to the local press complaining about audiences' behavior, people eating and shouting and fighting and swearing and putting people off the show. So it wasn't the the lovely uh, respectable place that we know now. But between 1885 and 1898, under Fred Morgan's management, however, he made it a much more attractive and successful place, putting on newer and more popular plays, mainly musical comedies, and as far as he was concerned, attracting a better class of audience. He worked hard to try and reinvent it as a more upmarket venue than it had been before, turning its fortunes and its reputation around. Although this had been fairly successful, by the mid-1890s Morgan had had enough of managing the Theatre Royal and began hatching plans for an even more ambitious and, admittedly, risky venture, namely the creation of an entirely new kind of theatre altogether, to be called the Grand Opera House and Theatre of Vanities. A much more sophisticated establishment, which would, he hoped, attract an even better class of customer, along with the profits it was hoped that this would generate, from the patronage of these well-heeled and discerning customers, in 1894 Morgan had attempted to reinstate the Theatre Royal's license to sell alcohol on the premises, but his application had been turned down by local magistrates who feared that if it began, if it became a, fu- uh, a, a licensed premises again, the place would revert back to the sorry state it had been in before, and perhaps this was one of the things that made him think twice about whether or not he wished to carry on at the Theatre Royal, or instead try for something bigger and better. So Morgan, along with his fellow investors, put a considerable amount of money into financing the proposed new Opera House and its construction. The original architect whose plans were first submitted for consideration was one Ernest Runtz in 1899, and they describe an elaborate and grand theatre indeed. They were published in the Building News and Engineering Journal on the 20th of October 1899 stating and I'll show you a slide so you can have a look at it that's what it was going to look like this theatre which is to be erected in St. Giles Orange, on the site of the old Norfolk Hotel which has been pulled down for the purpose of such erection will occupy about two-thirds of the site and will accommodate between 2,000 and 2,500 persons The remainder of the site will be occupied by a first-class restaurant and buffet. So that's what it would have looked like. So this is obviously the front is here at St. Giles. And it looks more like a palace, I think you'll agree, than a a theatre, although it was designed as an opera house. Okay. One of the features you can see on his drawing is this crescent-shaped forecourt, gated forecourt. Now this was to allow for patrons to be driven in their carriages off of the grotty street, right up to the front steps, mm-hmm. so they could just alight from their carriages and then uh, walk in through the, through the main doors. Very grand way of arriving, I'm sure you'll agree. For several years after securing and clearing the site ready for, for, for the building, nothing was done to carry the scheme forward and proceed with Runces' plans. Now perhaps the investors thought them a little too excessive and expensive. Eventually they were turned down in favour of the plan submitted by the architect Mr W.S.R. Sprague of London and the contractors to carry out the work Messrs Langdon and Sons Limited of Sheffield. Work began on the construction shortly afterwards in about 1902. The plans were in due course also published in the Building News and Engineering Journal on the 24th of July 1903 announcing its eminent opening schedule for Monday the 3rd of August that year. And this is what they settled on. And indeed what was built. So they said, this new approved design was not quite as elaborate as the one forwarded by Runtz, but it still described what would be a most beautiful and attractive building, I'm sure you'll agree. The seating capacity was slightly reduced to 1,836, but the theater would boast comfortable and spacious seating for its audience, good acoustics, the first class stage and facilities. It was designed in an Italian renaissance style. and The article went on to describe its architectural features thus. The entrance steps of the vestibule, now the vestibule is this curved frontage here. The theatre itself was a big square building, but it had this, as you can see through here to the background, this lovely sort of curved frontage here, it looks very grand. Um, it stands back 40 feet from the road. So if you imagine where the car park is, that, imagine all of that gone. It was a big, big site, very, very big site. The vestibule, 27 feet by eight feet, six inches, leads into the grand crush room, which is 30 feet by 20 feet. There are four private boxes and numerous stalls. Over the pit <coughs> is the dress circle. Above that, the balcony and then the gallery. Each tier is cut off from the one above and the one beneath by a fireproof floor of cement and concrete. The stage is separated from the theatre by a fire-resisting curtain of steel and asbestos. Couldn't do that now. (laughs) The stage is 70 feet by 40 feet and 50 feet high to the grid. At the goat lane end, so if you imagine where Upper Goat Lane is, it all went even as far around as that, is a block quite separate from the theatre. There are dressing rooms, 12 in number. Under the theatre itself, in addition to the stage cellar, are rooms for electricians, transformers room, gas man's room, band room, property rooms, etc. From the grand saloon to at the front of the house, a promenade opens over St Giles' frontage. So this was all about a balcony. You stand out here with your drinks. You? A balcony, fourteen feet in width. The theatre is lit by electricity, and the graving, sorry, and the paving in the vestibule grand crush room and lavatories was to be of a terrazzo and elsewhere it would be granolithic. This is a kind of marble stone that's flecked, you see it in country houses and things like that, museums, very grand indeed. So as you can see from this slide, the essential design including the crescent-shaped frontage was very similar to Runces' earlier plan and it generally retained that same sense of grandeur and splendour. Now these slides here show the interior. So this is stage here, looking out. Now this photograph was taken in the late 1950s, about 1960, and the inside hadn't changed very much at all. And you Imagine the colours as well. it's a very colourful, decorated place, lots of gold and red and beautiful colouring. Um, and this is a little detail photograph. You've got these kind of beautiful little details all over the place as well. And paintings and murals and all sorts of things. Now both of these images were taken by the f- Norwich photographer George Swain you may have heard of. Once the theatre was closed down he had access to the inside and the outside, he took lots of photographs. And uh, there's another couple of shots to give it some sort of sense of perspective. We're now looking down towards the city. So there's <coughs> the beginning of the curved front that's there, this take, was taken about 1930. See the tram line still? A Loch Fine fish restaurant is about here the car park entrance is roughly where those group of people are in the middle and this other shot here taken a bit earlier, that was about early 1900s looking back up some jars but you get the idea, sure (coughs) it was during this period of construction that Morgan put the Theatre Royal lease up for sale as he needed the finances and could not afford to run both at the same time he advertised the lease on the building much to the concern of Norwich Theatre goers who feared it would disappear and thus deprive the city of a much loved theatre it was eventually bought by theatrical entrepreneurs Messrs E. R. E. H. Bostock, I'm sorry, and Mr. FW Fitt, who intended to intended to reopen it as a variety theatre, which they did on the 31st of August, a mere four weeks after Fred Morgan opened the Norwich Opera House. Now, this is where it gets a bit confusing. When they took over the Theatre Royal, they renamed it the Norwich Hippodrome. And that was over that side, St Giles, was the Norwich Opera House. And the opening night was a very dazzling and spectacular uh, event by all accounts. Fred Morgan had opened his Grand Opera House already on the 3rd of August 1903 with a production of The Country Girl. But then, in 1904, only a year after its opening, Fred Morgan ran into trouble. The new Opera House was simply not making enough money. He'd spent a lot of money, pretty much everything he had on the venture, and he was struggling to recover the considerable expenditure that he had made. And despite its name, no opera had been performed there in a year, and never would be. Uh, Its programme consisting of musicals, plays and other variety acts. So much for his ambition to appeal to the well-heeled opera-loving customers of Norwich. He decided that enough was enough and he advertised the lease on the building as it appeared in the journal era of that year to the theater and musical proprietors and others wanted to sell by private treaty magnificent new freehold theater in first class provincial town with full dramatic and excise license the building has only been completed 12 months is fire resistant very important and built on the latest principles of steel and concrete decorated, fitted and furnished throughout, including electric lighting, they seem to think that was a bit of a novelty, heating and all the modern improvements. Reasonable purchasers, all their solicitors only negotiated with, apply to WGR Scrawl Architect. Silence is a polite negative. Now, realising this was a great chance to acquire it, the owners of the Norwich Hippodrome on Theatre Street, Bostock and Fit, approached Morgan with an offer to buy it and a deal was struck. Now they planned to convert the Opera House into a Hippodrome and Theatre of Varieties and effectively put on the sort of programme there that had proved so successful at the old Hippodrome, the Theatre Royal. Ironically as part of the deal Morgan returned to the Norwich Hippodrome, Theatre Royal, (laughs) as manager and changed its name from the Hippodrome back to the Theatre Royal, which is the name that's obviously kept ever since. Right, that's a that bit up the way, good. Now, for a number of years, the new Hippodrome, or just Hippodrome Theatre as it became known, ran as a successful variety theatre. The posters advertising it describe it as the handsomest place of amusement in the eastern counties the Gerald's official guide to Norwich of 1909 says that it is noted for a good class of variety entertainment now as a somewhat of a sideline I include this slide here oops sorry yep of the royal visit of Edward VII to Norwich he came on the 25th of October 1909 just a nice picture I found of the hippodrome gaily decked out and Bunting and if you want to see more images, if you go to the East Anglian Film Archive website, there is actually film footage of his visit, of his carriage going through Norwich. Someone put a camera on a tram and filmed the whole event. It's about 15 minutes long. It's well worth a look. Okay. <clears throat> In December 1911, it acquired its cinematograph license, and it allowed it, therefore, to show films, although it did not operate as a full-time cinema... But rather included them as novelty features in a packed variety program. In those days, films were only about between five and ten minutes long, and um, they used to just add them into uh, live shows. And at the end, of, if they had enough time apparently in the evening, if they finished early, they'd put a film to show that. Now, as a something of a diversion, I would like to also to mention a couple of the big names who made their appearances. Um, in the Hippodrome during this period of the 1910s and 1920s. Cary Grant, who was then still known as Archibald Leach, the famous, I'm sure you know, the famous actor, as a 13-year-old acrobat, appeared at the Hippodrome in 1917. He was part of a theatrical company run by a man called Bob Pender, who was a former Drury Lane clown, who had a troupe of young com- uh, comedy actors, performers and acrobats, stilt walkers and jugglers and so on, who were known as the Bob Pender knockabout comedians. It was a bit like the Fred Carnot company that Chaplin and Stan Laurel belonged to, along similar lines, and they toured the country in um, music halls and, and theatres. Now, Pender was a respected figure in the music hall world who toured the country, and Cary Grant, while he was working at Bristol Hippodrome, a 13-year-old schoolboy found out that there were opportunities to join Pender's group because apparently as the boys got older or too big or got bored with um, with, with being in the in the company they, they left and of course in that day they were also being enlisted as well so there's always opportunities for young for young uh, performers to join in so he found out about this and decided he'd join them because they were based in Norwich at that time so Cary Grant forged a letter from his father, signed it with his dad's name, sent it to uh, Pender asking if his son would be taken on as an, as a, as an apprentice <coughs> and uh, he was accepted. He got a letter back with a train fare to Norwich and so he left home without telling his dad at 13, came up to Norwich, auditioned, passed the audition and became an apprentice with the group. Now Cary Grant apparently he was, was about six foot tall when he was 13 and seemed a lot older than his age and Pender didn't realise that he was only 13, thought he'd left school, thought he was about 15 or 16 and took him on, which of course was against the law, but he didn't know that and on, didn't want to tell him. So he had a fair old time in Norwich and performed here with the group, um, eventually leaving, going back to Bristol, joining full time when he'd left school toured around the country and eventually went over to America and the rest is history as they say. And this is a photograph of the group as they would have been when, when uh, Cary Grant was a member and I'm sh- I wonder if you can spot which one he is. Yeah, absolutely. His name was Archie Leach. Archie Leach, yeah. yeah. You, can, you can tell it's him, can't you? So this is, this is exactly what they would have looked like when they are up in Norwich, this group the second artist worth, worth, worth singling out is the legendary Gracie Fields a uh, huge star of British stage and screen the 20s 30s 40s who appeared at the Hippodrome twice firstly in August 1922 as a 20 year old singer and dancer in Archie Pitts acting company's production Mr Tower of London poster of which I show you here and there she is about there, you can see. Uh, the show enjoyed a huge successful run. It lasted for six years and went all around the country from about 1918 to 23. It turned her into a musical uh, horse star, earning her her enduring moniker, Our Gracie. It ran for 4,000 performances, she did them all, and was seen by over a million people gives you some idea, you're on television for half an hour nowadays and you can be seen by 10 million people probably. And the second time she appeared was in the variety show By Request in February 1927. Now the acts, the list of acts I could name could go on and on as there are hundreds of people who appeared. Um, we don't really have time of course, but do feel free at the back of the room. There are posters from the Hippodrome's heyday, and there are also lots of photographs of acts performing at the Hippodrome, so do feel free to look through those and see if you recognise any names or faces. During the 1930s, under new management, the Hippodrome converted into a full-time cinema, showing the popular films of the day, and continued in that capacity until 1937. Live acts did continue to come in, but more money was felt to be made from showing films, which was becoming an increasingly popular form of entertainment. In 1931, it was equipped with the Western electric sound system and fully converted into a full-time cinema as of the 30th of September 1931. The first talkie film to be screened there was a 1929 film starring Ronald Coleman, who I'm sure you know, called Condemned. In the summer of 1932, it was taken over by the Associated British Cinemas, otherwise known as the ABC chain, which ran many cinemas in Britain, including, until about 20 years ago, the old ABC cinema from Prince of Wales Road. Remember that? One of the most controversial films shown at the Hippodrome was the German made Morgenrot or Dawn, made in 1933. It concerned the fate of submariners trapped in their stricken U boat in the Great War. It was described as a film to abolish war, and its theme was heroic self sacrifice for one's nation. It was released in Germany on the day before Hitler became Reich Chancellor. And it was immediately embraced by the nazi party as it embodied the virtues of patriotism honor and loyalty to one's nation i.e germany it was banned in england owing to its subject matter an apparent celebration of german militarism and it was not allowed to be shown in this country for some time the hippodrome's management was praised for being the first cinema to secure the rights to show the film as soon as the band was lifted. <coughs> i'll show this lovely shot here Nighttime shot of the Hippodrome. The placard up there announcing the film. You might not be able to read it, but above the title, the words, The Film London Was Afraid to Show. (laughs) (laughs) On the 4th of September 1937, after running quite successfully, the Hippodrome closed as a cinema and was leased to be, once again, a playhouse. The programme now was very much in favour of review shows rather than variety. This seemed to be a more highbrow form of theatrical entertainment. Now this was good for the management as it meant an increase in the number of visiting artists and thus more attractive for audiences and therefore hopefully more increased in takings. It continued in this manner until the outbreak of the Second World War. During the war years the Hippodrome prospered because of a new audience. Hundreds of single servicemen stationed in the many air bases close to Norwich who came to the city on leave or off duty looking for the pleasures and entertainments that servicemen do. Reviews were very popular at this time, somewhat geared up towards the tastes of these new patrons with titles such as Strip Please and Follow the Girls. These kind of saucy, raunchy, titillating shows featured nudity and striptease and proved to be very popular indeed. However, 1942 saw the launch of the Luftwaffe's devastating Baedeker raids on much of Britain, uh, the intention of Hitler being to destroy cities of cultural and historical importance, sort of wear down morale. And sadly, Norwich was targeted in these raids of this year, suffering particularly bad, destructive raids in April and June. Many people were killed and injured, and much was lost and damaged, including housing, historic buildings, churches, and two railway stations. In April, the Hippodrome suffered a direct hit, which did considerable damage, killing the then stage manager and his wife, and a sea lion trainer who was staying at the theater. The damage was such that the upper part of the building was closed for years, although repairs were carried out to the rest of the building so that it was functioning again within a year. The gallery remained closed until 1948, and I'll just show you here that's pre war, so that would be, say, the 20s, 1930. And I just notice the elaborate top. Then, after the war, when it got restored after all the damage, it ended up looking like that. Which is quite a difference, isn't it, really? Very plain, it's lost all its kind of lovely facade. Um, very sort of a bit sad, really, but it ended up looking like that. George Swain, the Norwich photographer, whose family photography business had a shop right next door to the Hippodrome Bazaar, recounts the occasion of the raid that damaged it so badly. The explosion ripped out the back of his studio where he was working, and it resulted in a very strange and tragic experience for him, which he recounted later on, years later. He says that if he was working, I was in my studio in St. Giles, loading my camera when the Hippodrome next door was hit. Esmond Wilding was taking over the management of the Hippodrome that week, and he and the retiring manager were standing on the stage door steps when the bombs fell. The stage manager and the owners of a troupe of performing sea lions were in the indoor shelter, which I presume would have been in the cellar underneath the theatre. The bomb killed the stage manager, the wife, his wife and the sea lion's trainer and blew the two house managers down the steps without hurting them and lifted the stage of the theatre into the air. The stage supports fell, but the stage remained four inches above the normal level. He went inside to see if he could help. He said, from inside the theatre came a terrible sound, a wailing worse than the whistle of the bomb. It was from one of the sea lions, which the explosion of the bomb had released from its pen. I shall never forget the noise it made, flapping its ungainly way through the dark, empty theatre, crying for its master. And the poor animal apparently died shortly afterwards, some say of a broken heart. After the war, and into the 1950s, once repaired and running again, the Hippodrome continued as a variety theatre and also put on Christmas shows once a year. And during this period, a, n- a number of new and up-and-coming acts, as well as some old names, continued to perform and pull in the audiences. It hosted a number of big radio shows too, such as Opportunity Knocks with Huey Green, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the goons appear Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan and Michael (laughs) (laughs) Bent looking as normal as ever Um, and they performed uh, did their radio shows broadcast and recorded there for one week in 1954 Max Miller appeared the Cheeky Chappie and he did um, several shows here Um, he did a matinee show Uh, Someone who comes in here, a customer, remembers going to see him as a boy. uh, But he said it wasn't very good because he used jokes from his so-called white book, which was family-friendly jokes. In the evening, (laughs) he did his more uh, characteristic near-the-knuckle adult jokes, which he got from his blue book. (laughs) Very (laughs) amusing, I'm sure. And also, these two gentlemen, who you may recognize, (laughs) who performed in the late 1950s. Now this was a time when Morecambe and Wise um, were working on the variety circuit all around the country. This was, they were trying to work hard to re-establish their reputation following their disastrous television debut on the BBC show called Running Wild. They tried to make the transition to TV and it was an absolute disaster and it got terrible reviews. Um, it was seen as a complete failure. So much so that one newspaper reviewer apparently wrote in his, uh, crit, in his crit, definition of the week TV set, the box in which they buried Morecambe and Wise, <coughs> and obviously, uh, little did he know, apparently Eric Morgan cut the review out and carried it around with him in his wallet for the rest of his life. <laughs> and of course, most famously, Laurel and Hardy appeared as part of their 1953-54 British tour, made, and they made their one and only live appearance in Norfolk when they performed at the Hippodrome on the 16th of February 1954 in their show Birds of a Feather. Here they are arriving in Norwich. Now there was much coverage and excitement in the local press when they visited. Now they stayed in the Royal Hotel at the top of Prince of Wales Road, so that is the top of Prince of Wales Road looking down. It's them in the afternoon arriving on their way to rehearsals at the Hippodrome. they apparently, when they were dri- being driven through Norwich to the Hippodrome they were very impressed with what they saw of Norwich, uh, particularly the City Hall for some reason. It's rather amusing because many years earlier there was a comedian called uh, Norman Long who was performing in the Hippodrome where they were going to in 1938 when the City Hall had only just been built and he said it looked like a marmalade factory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think many people liked it at all this time. <laughs> anyway, upon arriving at the theatre Apparently they told the driver of the car, the stage door please, not the front entrance. That is reserved for ladies and gentlemen. Now their appearance at the Hippodrome cost the, cost the then manager, Denny Fouchart, a princely sum of £1,750, a £1, thousand pounds of which paid uh, Lauren Hardy's fee. Now this was more money than had ever been spent on an act at the Hippodrome ever before. It's about 44,000 pounds in today's money. Very, very expensive. And apparently, in order to try and cover his costs, all the seat prices were raised, except those in the gallery, were raised by six pence. Now, the Eastern Evening News is review of the show, ran thus: Here they are, the same as ever. They're still at the top of the tree, and if the tree is shaking, that's them performing on stage. If the tree is shaking, it's only with the laughter of the the audiences. To see Laura and Hardy playing, it is sheer joy. It is done with all their consummate skill, so quietly, so effortlessly, so effectively. It's great fun. You'll be sorry if you miss it. The pair so resembled their film selves, that when the curtain went up, the audience took a minute or two to realise they were seeing their childhood comedy favourites in the flesh. The reviewer for the EDP remarked, Laurel and Hardy on stage with their vast experience of perfect timing, quaint gestures, grimaces and unexpected repartee are even funnier than in the more remote entertainment of the screen. The audiences were still laughing when the curtain fell and the pair said goodnight. It would have been a big deal to see them because now you're used to seeing people on television all the time and people tour all the time. But they only ever toured Britain twice in the 30s and the 50s. So it would be quite something to see them here in Norwich. It would have been quite standard, I'm sure, for people. Now, there had persisted for a number of years a rumour that Charlie Chaplin had once performed at the Hippodrome in the early 1900s with Stan Laurel when they were both performing with Fred Carno's company on a British tour. Now, when Laurel and Hardy were here in 1954, a reporter had asked Stan Laurel if this was the case and did he actually, had he performed here before with Chaplin, but he said he couldn't remember being in Norwich before, so he couldn't say for sure. It seems most likely that Chaplin did appear here once, but in a music hall theatre where the Agricultural Hall is on the top of Printer Road, that Wales Road, that was used for various things and was once a theatre. So it's possible that Chaplin did perform there, but we're not sure because no one seems to remember. <laughs> but never mind. Anyway, back to the Hippodrome. In its final years through the 1950s, the quality of the shows and acts that appeared began to go somewhat downhill. There were risque musical acts which featured nude dancing and stripping. And the review shows at the Hippodrome became increasingly bawdy. That seemed to be the thing that they were drawing the punters in. Now, it also featured on its programme the new craze of rock and roll, with various bands and singers performing, most notably in February 1957, with the appearance of Art Baxter and his rock and roll sinners. <laughs> a sort of second-rate rock and roll tribute act who were cashing in on the popularity of this new musical fad. I don't think they were very good, but they realized they could make money out of aping their rock and roll music uh, craze. Art Baxter, the singer, was by all accounts a very loud, raucous, and over-amplified singer whose act caused great excitement to the audience. On the Friday night of their run, Some audience members climbed onto the stage to dance with the band, and the management, fearing a riot, (laughs) put the house lights on and played the national anthem in an attempt to (laughs) show. In April 1954, um, after a short period of being closed to fully repair the Hippodrome after its bomb damage 16 years earlier, had all been carried out and the theatre was fully refurbished the Hippodrome opened again, rather optimistically this time, as a repertory theatre with a resident acting company called the Norfolk Playhouse. There were high hopes for its success, but unf- unfortunately the venture was far from successful. The public did not seem to share the enthusiasm for the Norfolk Playhouse um, that was shared with its uh, actors and manager. And according to Francis and Michael Holmes, authors of the excellent book Norwich 1945-1960, from austerity to prosperity. There was another reason, perhaps, which kept the people away during this time. Norwich City Football Club embarked on their FA Cup run, which saw them get all the way to the semi-finals in March 1959. That same month, the Playhouse temporarily closed, saying that it had to do so due to a combination of icy roads Fog and football. (laughs) However, in April the doors opened once more and the company tried again to make the venture work, but unfortunately they failed, so that the theatre was obliged to close in June once more due to poor, poor ticket sales and poor attendance. The Building was advertised as being for sale or to let once again. Efforts were made to keep the venue going in some kind of capacity, as it was a much loved place and in November 1959, an, enterpri- an enterprising man called Robert Harvey, a Lowestoft entrepreneur and businessman, took over. He operated television, radio and photography shops in Lowestoft and had ambitions to run the old Hippodrome. as a theatre and cinema combined. Now, despite his best efforts, it only ran as a cinema for a few months. Under his ownership, it was renamed yet again, this time back to... Sorry, wrong slide. The Norwich Hippodrome. Now in this shot, this was when the theatre had closed, you might not be able to see, but there's dark lettering that says Norfolk Playhouse, and over the top of that, the word Hippodrome, so it was painted over to try and reinvent it yet again. (coughs) Under his ownership, it was renamed the Hippodrome. This shot shows it in its rather dilapidated state once it closed down. Now the last ever Christmas show that was performed there uh, was entitled Christmas Crackers and it ran from Boxing Day 1959 to the 9th of January 1960. According to author Peter Cossey, in his book Continuous Performances, Memories of Norrie Cinemas, a friend of his attended the last Christmas show shown at the Hippodrome and he reported it to be a depressing experience. The vast theatre was very sparsely attended, and there was no response from the few that were there, except for one chap at the front of the stalls who laughed loudly at everything going on, so much so that the rather embarrassing exhibition was generally considered to be a plant by the management to inject an atmosphere into <laughs> the <laughs> scenes. Robert Harvey continued to run the Hippodrome <coughs> as a cinema until he too admitted defeat and unable to attract live acts to supplement the film shows and faced with a big increase in rent and running costs he threw in the towel. Now some people blame the increasing prominence of television as one factor that contributed Mm -hmm. to the demise of these kind of live theatres, in the same way perhaps as it led to the closure of many smaller cinemas as audiences lost interest in attending. But another factor was the sheer cost of running such places, and with dwindling ticket sales, it proved to be simply not viable to carry on. The Hippodrome finally closed its doors for good on the 27th of April, 1960. George Swain, who we have to thank for photographing dozens of Norwich buildings, streets and locations, many of which have changed dramatically over the years, or if not completely vanished, had access to the interior of the theatre and took number of photographs of it so again, we are there's that shot again we showed uh, I showed you earlier on and this and this was when it was closed completely closed stage again and this shot which is hard to picture but this is Upper Goat Lane and this was like an access into the theatre sort of stage side the Quakers meeting house is just a little bit further down here imagine all this is completely demolished now it's just the, the car park there But he took even took a photograph of that. Um, If you're interested in seeing more photographs, I recommend you look at the Picture Norfolk website, which you can access from the Norfolk Library uh, uh, website. Um, Picture Norfolk. Some of the photographs I'm showing you here from there. I've got some fantastic pictures. They've got all of Swain's photographs, and we have some here today at the back of the room. There is a box. Featuring lots more shots he took of inside the theatre to give you a real sense of what it was like to go inside and look around. So I recommend you look at Picture Norfolk and uh, the, uh, the the photographs afterwards. Now, this gives you an idea of some of these photographs Oops. of how. Grand, this place would have looked even even when it was empty. It really was a fantastic space, but also the sorry condition that it ended up um, in later on, like that. Um, you can just think what it looked like when it was first built. The forecourt here seems to have been turned over to be used as a car park. Obviously, car parking by the early 60s was a big problem in Norwich, and more people driving in the city. And so any space, vacant space like this was taken up with car parking, which is somewhat ironic considering what happened to it <laughs> ultimately. Um, and it stood in this rather sorry state, empty and derelict until 1964, when eventually, after it was vandalised and neglected and left to rot, it was pulled down. All gone, nothing left at all. Swain took this photograph, it was demolished, um, the very last day it stood. It is a shame that many theatres and similar venues were ultimately demolished after having gone through a number of reincarnations as theatres, playhouses, opera houses, cinemas, bingo halls, and all sorts of other things. But despite the fact that it ran in its various guises as a theatrical premises for nearly 60 years and played host to hundreds of acts and performers, some of them very famous indeed, it ultimately suffered the fate of many theatres of its kind throughout the country in the post war years when audiences lost interest and going. And such places were just deemed irrelevant and out of date in the changing way that the public wanted their entertainment served up. Firstly with the emergence of and later dominance of cinema, which the Hippodrome, like many places, tried to incorporate film into its programme of live shows to try and, you know, tag onto that. But ironically it proved to be its downfall in the end. And then eventually of course television, which did have a massive effect on on people's what people wanted to do in the free time. Many theatres like the Hippodrome, unable to run profitably due to increases in the cost of their leases and their increased running costs, as well as the cost of the acts themselves and the scarcity of the acts, um, were obliged to close down as they were no longer financially viable, nor were they drawing in the audiences that they once did in their glory days. Eventually work began on the construction of the St Giles car park which opened in 1966 and this is a view of the also of this recognizable scene quite, quite easy now these rather depressing modern buildings the whole block's called St. Giles House now I think you've still got these old buildings here that was contemporary when, when the Norwich Opera House first opened and further up the road as well so you can just see what a big sway this would have taken up uh, in its heyday um, very different now this photograph is about 40 years old but essentially hasn't changed You've got different tenants in some of those buildings. You had, uh, if, you, if you recall, you had Prelude Records just next to the car park entrance. That's now empty. This is an ice cream parlor now. And these shops have changed hands various times. All very different. All very different indeed from all those years ago. However, if next time you walk past the Giles car park, or indeed next time you park in it, Forget about the ugly concrete and the cars, and instead let your mind wander back to the opulence and splendour of the old Hippodrome in its glory days, which may be gone, but which are hopefully not forgotten. Thank you.